0: Hey Kyle, this is Greg from Ottawa, Ontario. I moved to Nanaimo, BC this summer, and uh, I don't know anybody here, but uh, I just got back from one of many walks to the ocean and uh, just witnessed a beautiful sunset. Saw about four deer in the neighborhood tonight, heard a barred owl, and saw some river otters swimming in the ocean. So, um, yeah, just uh, enjoying the evening. And I hope you do, too.
1: Thank you, Greg. You painted a very beautiful picture there. I hope that you are enjoying your time up in the north. You know, I had a listener send in a voice memo in the last podcast, and they, incl- they included their Instagram handle. And they said, hey, if anyone else is out in Oregon, hit me up on Instagram, uh, would love to connect. And I I really appreciated that idea because I wish I had a better way to connect all of you great like-minded folks. And if you would like to send me a voice memo and include some kind of contact info in it, uh, maybe you could meet some like-minded people, you know, who live in your town. It's been really funny. Um, I'm out here in Montana, and I've been meeting a lot of cool listeners. And a lot of these people don't know each other, but they would be friends, and they live, you know, 10 blocks away from each other. And it's like, hey, sweet, we both listen to the same podcast. We're both... Weirdos with the same interests. Um, So that's one way to connect up with other folks is just include your Instagram handle. And as always, keep the voice memos under one minute. And I'd love to play them. You can just email them to info at kyle.surf. And kyle.surf is where you can check out all of my articles. I'm pumping them out weekly. And I recently released one that's been getting um, a good amount of feedback on universal basic income. So you can head over over to Kyle.surf click the writing section and see all of my work. Huge thank you to everyone who has signed up for my book club. We are on month three now and we're going strong. Um, been getting a lot of good, um, Just good community building as I've tried to get more reading into my life. Um, The way it works is you sign up for a monthly subscription book club, and each month I give you, I send you a book that I love along with Santa Cruz Medicinals CBD tincture, which I take most nights before I go to bed. It's kind of a a good little habit build. You know, you take the tincture, read a few pages of a book, um, and it's really increased my reading. Um, and this month for August, the book is Atomic Habits by James Clear. Man, it is fantastic. I finished it um, in about two days, and it's had a big impact on the way that I see it habits and the way that I see, um, change and how to apply change in your life. So if you get value out of this podcast, a great way to support it is to sign up for the book club. And thank you to everyone who has done that. Um, it really does make a huge difference and allows me, um, to prioritize this project, um, at uh, this podcast, you know, as a, a primary job of mine. So thank you everyone that service where you can check that all out. And Santa Cruz Medicinals has been a longtime supporter of this podcast. You can head over to scmedicinals.com, type in the code name KYLE10, get 10% off all their products. They make everything from you know uh, facial creams to coconut oil. Um, I love their little tincture that they use, but they make everything you know f- from soaps to, uh, to just all kinds of good, good CBD stuff. scmedicinals.com. Secondly, I have a challenge for all of you, and you are a challenge-accepting type of group. I know that. So here's the challenge for the week. I want you to do a 10-minute workout. It's just 10 minutes. How hard could it be? You do as many reps as possible of 10 squats, 10 dumbbell snatches, 10 push-ups, and 50 single under jump, rope, uh, jump ropes. And I'm going to include this in the description below this podcast. But this weekly workout is brought to you by RPM Training. They're a NorCal-based active lifestyle brand founded on the idea that legit, purposeful, functional training is the foundation of a truly full and adventurous life. I've been using their workout gear for a long time. I use their workout shorts, and their jump rope is the best jump rope in the world. It will change the way that you think about jump ropes and workouts. Um, and you can head over to rpmtraining.com and get 10% off any product by typing in the code name Kyle10. Super simple. And if you want to complete this workout um, with me, you can let me know. Um, all you need is a jump rope and a dumbbell. I've been doing a lot of these workouts on the road. Um, they're short. They're not super hard, but they help me maintain a base level of functionality. And that's really what I'm going for. I don't need to go get jacked to be one of these crazy CrossFit dudes. I just want to be able to go on adventures. And I find that even doing a 10-minute workout a day where I'm you know, pushing it, Um, allows me to maintain that base level of fitness. So head over to rpmtraining.com, pick yourself up a jump rope, some workout equipment at 10% off by typing in the code name KYLE10. And finally, thank you to the Nell Newman Foundation for supporting this podcast. Nell Newman is uh, Paul Newman's daughter, the the late Paul Newman, and she supports environmental and um, social nonprofits all over the world. She's a a really amazing woman. She was the... Primary funder of that comedy show, The Motherfucker Awards, that Chris Ryan and I co created. Um, and now she's supporting this podcast. And with each of these ads, I get to highlight a nonprofit that she supports with the hope that I can engage a new audience to some of these social issues and you will go out and volunteer. I think the volunteering is. Um, it's a really important thing to do because, especially with a, a nonprofit in your neighborhood, because it um, builds it builds community. It builds that kind of social fascia that is really lacking. You guys might be able to hear a train in the background. I'm coming to you from Whitefish, Montana, right now, and there's a train that goes by about every 15 minutes. But uh, I'm going to let you. Pl- I'm going to play out. A uh, voice memo from the group Shared Adventures. Um, and if you're in the Santa Cruz area, you can get involved with them. And if you're somewhere else, go get involved with any nonprofit in your neighborhood.
0: Hi, this is Foster, Executive Director for Shared Adventures. We provide outdoor recreational programs for people with special needs and physical challenges. And we have activities five days a week with bingo. Our classes trivia night dance classes and a, an adaptive yoga class and the last couple weeks we've been able to go outside to the Redwoods and do some social distancing that way and we have a kayaking trip coming up this Monday at the wharf so if you're interested in helping volunteer for the activities ahead. Go to sharedadventures.org, or you can give me a call at 831-459-7210, and I hope everyone's having a great summer.
1: If you do end up volunteering with Shared Adventures, hit me up on Instagram. I'd love to hear about how it went, or you can email me at info at kyle.surf. This episode is with one of my heroes. Tim Cahill is one of the founders of Outside Magazine and is the author of its longest-running column, Out There. He currently serves as the editor-at-large, and he is the author of nine books, including Jaguar's Ripped My Flesh, which was named by National Geographic as one of the hundred best travel adventure books ever written. is the co-author of four IMAX documentary screenplays, two of which were nominated for Academy Awards. And he lives in Montana in the shadow of the crazy mountains. Please welcome to the show, Tim Cahill. did you first meet Hunter S Thompson? Oh, probably in the Rolling
2: Stone offices in San Francisco when I worked there in the uh, very early 70s, like like 1970, 71, uh, Hunter came around. Uh, I was uh, I was not a writer then or really a known writer. I was uh, when I got hired they said your title is editorial drudge.
1: And what did that mean?
2: Um, I had to go through the slush pile, which is uh, all the, uh, um, the the manuscripts that have been submitted, you know, sometimes in Crayon, <laughs> people writing with their left hands. It's, you know, uh, I never found anything in the whole damn slush pile that
1: was uh, publishable, but uh, I spent a lot of my time doing that. And was, was Hunter older than you at that time? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Cause that was, if it was the early seventies. I mean, that right. was right in his height right. coming out with, uh, like on the campaign trail and a lot of the work that's kind of stood the test of time.
2: Yeah. Um, Hunter was, um, uh, five or six years older. Uh, he, I had come in, uh, to Rolling Stone with precisely no journalism experience, uh, Graduated from uh, – got a master's degree at San Francisco State in uh, uh, creative writing. I thought I was going to write the great American novel. I ended up at Rolling Stone. Um, In those days, uh, journalism was journalism. It's uh, what you read on the front page of the paper or what you read in the editorial page Um, – basically argumentative uh, essays on the editorial page and uh, um, uh, just the facts, ma'am, on uh, the front page. Um, But starting at that time, there was uh, Tom Wolfe and Hunter and uh, some other people who did their – Journalism using the techniques of fiction. In other words, you carpent together a scene, and then another scene, and then another scene. You didn't necessarily have to follow uh, the chronology. You could jump around. Uh, you uh, uh, you tried to achieve, at least I did. I tried to achieve uh, emotional, uh, some kind of emotional response from the writing, which could be either laughter or anger um or it could be sad um if i could make them laugh and cry in the same piece i i originally said i have created a uh, an illusion of depth and the more i thought about it the more <laughs> i said no man you created real depth there <laughs> that's that's what the deal is um so in Rolling Stone in those days, uh, you could advance very, very rapidly. So I went from, uh, editorial drudge to, uh, uh writing music, um, uh, got fired. But it, it, it was kind of a mercurial situation. Um, uh, uh, I think I was fired five or six times, mm-hmm. uh, uh, and then rehired. Right. Uh, you know, it's like, um i would uh i would uh and, and it wasn't necessarily that I was fired because somebody didn't like what I did. It was uh that the editor publisher Jan Werner um, worked on this sort of pendulum sort of deal where the pendulum would swing far, far to the right and uh, <clears throat> and and in that case, we wanted only the best. Only the greatest literature, and then the business would intrude, and then we got the uh, memos about saving paper clips and uh, and then I think Jan said, "Hey, is Cahill working for us anymore let's, let's fire his ass and you know and save some money and then I would have about a six months vacation and uh, and write a piece for somebody like Esquire and uh, uh, Jan said. Well, what's he doing in Esquire? He's our writer. So I'd get hired back at a uh, uh, at a, a raise, you know. I'd get more money. So you know, I just got used to. Uh, my, but, but like I say, in those days, you could uh, um, advance very rapidly. And at Rolling Stone, for instance, um, uh, Harriet Fear. Um, started off as a part-time night receptionist. And within five years, she was the um, managing editor. So um, I quickly progressed from music to certain kinds of investigative journalism to uh, 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 I, I did I did any number of movie stars, uh, you know, Clint Eastwood, Mariel Hemingway... Um, uh, Dustin Hoffman, people like that. Jack Nicholson. Jack Nicholson is fun to hang around with, I got to tell you. Is he? Yeah. yeah. Good he, personality. You know, he, he's, he's pretty much the way you would expect him. He, <laughs> he truly, truly enjoys his life.
1: Yeah. I, you know, one thing I've heard about uh, Huntress Thompson when he was on the campaign trail is that um, – w- You know, wives would have to call their husbands to ask about what it was really like on the campaign trail. But with Thompson, the wife didn't have to call because he actually wrote about it. And there was a a power in that he was this outsider with a new take on this whole circus. And uh, I watched a documentary with Thompson where he said, you know, I never expected to be in politics long enough to you know, make any friends. So I could just write about whatever I saw and that power of being an outsider kind of parachuting in take, having this new take on an arena. Um, I always thought was really interesting.
2: It was. And, uh, <clears throat> may I suggest a companion book, uh, the boys on the bus by Timothy Krause, uh, who was <clears throat> covering the same election and, uh, and writing about, the the uh, uh, the press corps uh, on the uh, press bus and every one of them getting together and talking about uh, All right what's our lead what's our lead <laughs> so they you know kind of figuring that sort of thing out um, yeah Hunter was uh, uh, when when I first started uh, Hunter was uh, developing. I mean he had he'd already worked on this edge city style that he was in but uh, he was in the midst of it then
1: what's edge city style <clears throat> um,
2: he uh, was able to irritate people to a um, uh, to a large degree, except not quite enough to be kicked out. You know, it, he's always pushing things to the very, very edge. And I remember a time when I was, uh, this time I was doing uh, some politics, and uh, believe me, I was no good at politics. And I was doing uh, Senator Howard Baker, the uh, 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 the man who, uh, the Republican senator from Tennessee, who uh, asked, "What did the president know, and when did he know it?" and I was doing a uh, uh, a profile of him. I was in Tennessee. I was going to see him tomorrow, three o'clock at, uh, in the morning. I get a call from Hunter, uh, who has tracked me down to a motel somewhere in uh, in Knoxville, and uh, said. Give me Howard Baker's number right now, Hunter. I, mean, I got to interview the guy tomorrow. You know, I, I, I need that number. Why, why do you need the number, Hunter? Turned out that Hunter had said something uh, in an Edge City sort of way that. Uh, um, uh, Hubert Humphrey should be castrated and his testicles should be sent out on the tide so that uh, uh, there would be no more, uh, his his seed would be forever uh, gone. And and, uh, when that was quoted to Howard Baker, he said, well, they ought to do the same thing to that writer. And I said, well… Uh, what are you going to talk to him about, Hunter? And he said, he's a United States senator. When he says something like that about me, it's different than when I say something about that, (laughs) 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 about Hubert Humphrey. (laughs) And and, uh, uh, at that particular time, I had to tell Hunter, geez, I lost his telephone number. I can't find it right now because I had the interview tomorrow morning and I did not really want... To excoriate him at three thirty in the morning, of the, the before I went to interview.
1: Uh, so you said that you're you're no good at writing about politics. Nah, why nah. do you think that is? Well,
2: politicians have uh, stock answers, and they uh, uh, they answer those things and they answer things very carefully. Um, I like talking to real people where uh, you just have a conversation, and uh, and they don't really cover up. I mean, even when I was doing such things as uh, interviewing movie stars, uh, uh, now, um, because of some of the interviews I did and other people did at the time, uh, you used to be able to hang out on set. You used to be able to talk to people while they were uh, uh, you know, working, while they'd just done a scene. Um, you used to have long conversations now they bring a publicist with them and the publicist slaps down a uh, uh, a tape recorder and uh, uh, and the answers are careful or the publicist stops the uh, subject from speaking and answers the question for you and uh, that th- that got to be less fun too but in the time that I was doing it you could do just the simplest damn thing. So you would say, um, "Well, yeah, I, 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 I know the, I know you don't want to talk about the divorce thing. Nobody wants to talk about the divorce thing. Hell, I don't want to talk about mine. You ought to see what she did to me, man. She did this, she did this, she did that, she did that. And the natural response from almost anybody is." You think that's bad? Look, She did this, she did that, she did that. I could get people to say things that uh, ordinarily they wouldn't say. um, uh, And that was my interview technique.
1: Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, be be vulnerable yourself and uh, then all of a sudden they'll start opening up to you. Well, and also
2: writing and uh, reporting is about story. And... If you tell a story, they will tell a story. And likely, um, you will be able to use that story. People remember, they don't remember your argumentative essay. They remember, this happened, this happened, this happened, and this story frames my thought.
1: Yeah, I mean, if I told you about my divorce, let me tell you. (laughs) yeah i've I've found that there that uh you know having this podcast for for four years um you know an interview can go so well and when it does there's just this feeling of of connectedness and like mm. nourishment when you get up from one of those ones when mm. the guest can have some kind of insight that they didn't have before mm-hmm. and they maybe feel that you helped them get there it's a it's a real special moment. And I've, and I've, you know, on some interviews that I've had, I've found that I feel this kind of friendship forming as it's going. And, and there's this real intuition of how far you can push it at certain moments. Mm -hmm. Right. And if you push it too far or you take the conversation in a way that, you know, the, maybe you ask them a question that they've had, they've been asked a million times before you just, see this glaze go over their eyes. And it's a little bit like, you know, you were on a boat in the middle of the night out at sea, taking a piss and you fall off and you just see the boat drifting away from you. And you're, you're screaming and shouting. Right. And, uh, no one's hearing you, right. No one's hearing you. And then all of a sudden time starts to move very slowly.
2: Uh, back in the day when we used to have to do, uh, uh, when I would publish a book, we would go on a book tour, and I would, you know, so you would uh, get up in the morning and do Good Morning, Cleveland, and uh, and then you would uh, talk to uh, a reporter for an hour. You'd have lunch with another reporter. You would do a radio show in the afternoon, get on a plane and go to Detroit. Well, yes, uh, people always ask the same questions, and uh, and you got good at just, pretty much stock answers. Uh, but uh, I can recall doing those things where I, where I would be, I would just get the same question. I start giving my stock answer and uh, I'd say to myself, Holy shit. Did I just say this to this guy or, or was that the last guy? Right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah.
1: yeah. You're, you're actually not sure. It's <laughs> like, uh, you know going back on the market or something and like dating new people and you have to kind of give your like a first date is kind of an interview right like this is check me out this is who i am right and you're like have i said this story before right to her to yeah. her yeah to, to this one to yeah, this one. I'm not
2: or, sure. or, is it, or is
1: that the last one yeah. right exactly yeah it's a good um maybe a good practice to try and have a new story every time to try and stay in that that present moment, and you know, I've heard you say uh, that you really gravitated towards adventure journalism because you're a lazy researcher. That's right, and that you, by going on the adventure and putting yourself in some kind of mortal danger, potentially, you had to, you know, cross your t's and dot your i's a little bit more, otherwise, you might die in that underwater cave or on top of that mountain. And I, I really like that because it's like I've always really gravitated towards this idea that you can learn everything through anything. Like my love very early on was surfing and I always saw it more than anything as a vehicle for me to be able to see the world and learn about new environments. Um, Certainly wouldn't know nearly as much about meteor meteorology if I yeah. hadn't started chasing micro meteorology. Exactly, yeah. you know, you and you learn how to you learn social skills when you're on a trip, you know, in mm. a different culture, trying to get some local to show you where mm. the new wave is, and really the amount of skills that I've learned through that single pursuit have shaped my life. Um, and I always and I really liked what you said about that, you know you need to do research if it if you have the incentive to do it and by having some kind of quest while you're on that trip mm-hmm. it creates meaning like i've found that whenever i'm on a trip and i'm just um you know ambling about with no real reason for being there i tend to get depressed pretty darn quickly and it tend to be funneled into those areas of the city that aren't real. You know, they're the the ones for tourists. But as soon as I get on some quest or some story, new alleyways open up and it tends to feel a lot more meaningful. Yeah. Do you, uh, it's, it's always good to do as
2: much research as you possibly can. Um, Read the very latest uh, things that, have been written about that particular place. And then if it turns out that, uh, you know, there's something that everybody notices, that's something that you don't need to notice. You will go try to yeah. go um, a little bit deeper. And also um, there, in doing these sorts of things, um, you, you train I have to. I had to train to do uh, a lot of things. Um, for instance, uh, uh, we took a rope and threw it off of uh, L Cap and uh, anchored it up there and climbed the rope and and then rappelled uh, the rope. That's uh, a pretty damn long rappel. Uh, it's a pretty damn long climb as uh, as the thing would have it, and i, <laughs> I um, uh, uh, I'd practice that for uh, th- those those skills for quite some time, yes, yes, I'm like the ordinary guy that does it, but uh, I also read, train, and uh work hard to be able to uh, accomplish those particular things and I remember that climb. Very, I'll tell you a little story about it. I remember that climb very well because I was with my uh, photographer uh, friend uh, Michael Kane Nick Nichols, a uh, uh, very famous National Geographic photographer. Um, and he was uh, going to be taking my picture uh, as I was climbing and he said, I'll climb first. Well, the idea was as a photographer, he's going to shoot down at my terrified face and all of the uh, ground below. That's the shot. Otherwise, he'd be shooting up at my butt against the sky, which is probably not a good uh, thing. Okay, he had his cameras with him, and he didn't want to take as much water because uh, it weighed a lot, and uh, he was shooting film at the time, so they were heavier cameras. Um, so he tried to hydrate up at the bottom of the climb when we started. And I suppose we got about three quarters of the way up. And he said, Tim, I'm sorry. I really, I, you didn't think about that before we started. And, uh. Uh, and if you know El Cap, it goes right by the road there. So there's all these people watching you, and we're doing something different. We're not climbing the the wall. We're climbing the rope. So I'm sure the binoculars were on us. And uh, I thought about this for a while, and I said, okay, Nick, I'm going to climb up. I'm going to clip on just above you, and I'll have my feet just below your feet. You'll turn your back to me. I will hold you uh, around the chest and and you can do what you have to do. Well, you know, the rope slowly spins around. (laughs) And so there's this yellow fountain going on. It's a gallon of water. (laughs) And I thought, you know, I wonder if we get to the top We'll get some kind of lewd conduct <laughs> <laughs> uh, sort of thing, yeah. So yeah, that was fun. The,
1: was there um was there a point when it clicked for you that your um self depreciating humor was a power?
2: <clears throat> yeah, um yeah, and, and you know what? Sometimes um you write a, I can do something that's like a kind of a purple passage. I mean, stuff that I think is uh, pretty hot writing, and uh, either that or um, uh, I'm trying to say what this particular thing means in ecological terms, and I realize I'm getting too serious in one thing. And that you can deflate those things with a self-deprecating thing, and it's it's funnier in context. I mean, I've I've seen this a lot. Um, somebody's reading something that I wrote, and uh, and they they break out in a laugh, and uh, so I said, "Well, what's funny?" Well, it isn't a line. It isn't a. It isn't a. Uh, a, a joke. It isn't a punchline. What it is is you have to know the whole story. Uh, before that little particular thing is funny, um, so it's hard for people to describe how I'm funny, uh, and I don't particularly say, except for a few minor cases, but I generally don't say something like, okay, now I'm going to write a really funny story. I'm just going to write a story, and then it works out that, that way. And usually, the, the break comes when I realize I've been too dense, too encyclopedic, too um, uh, too purple, or maybe a, a little bit too preachy, and uh, at that point, you need a break, uh, and I need to bring you back into my uh, uh, into my guidance. I, what I'm doing when I'm taking you on a trip is I'm taking you by the hand and I'm guiding you gently into
1: this uh, thing. Yeah. Yeah, I've um, I interviewed a comedian once named Brian Callen who said, um, "Don't try and be funny. Talk about what you're afraid of, what you're ashamed of, who you're pretending to be, and who you really are, and then people will laugh." <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, and I, I, what I think is you know inherently funny about adventure stories is that. A joke to me is like this huge premise that you're building up, and then at the last minute you tear down the whole premise. Yeah. Right. And adventure, you know, you before this podcast, you showed me this old book, Men's Adventure magazine, and it's, mm-hmm. you know, Aquaman with a knife, you know, battling the the octopus, you know, mm-hmm. and it's and it's seen as heroism um and bravery. But there's something inherently funny to me about taking on this adventure as a wuss or you know all of your missteps along the way which is such a a a more honest approach to i think anyone's experience but most people are terrified to talk about that experience um but by just giving them permission to laugh about the fear in the face of nature tends to be ripe with humor
2: it is. It is. It, it works that way. You see a dangerous shark while scuba diving. Um, in those men's adventure magazines, uh, which were all fiction, of course, uh, uh, your, uh, your job was to pull out a penknife and battle the uh, uh, shark to death with uh, great gouts of blood. Um, but in real life... When you do that, you go, whoa, and uh, things all get a way sharper edge on them. And you're reacting, but you don't react uh, in the ordinary way of reacting, in the ordinary way of, uh, I better do this, I better do this. You act in an instinctual, um, creatural sort of uh way and then you have you also have something brilliant to write about Uh, the shark what it looked like what it felt like you get you bring your reader right in there and tell them what it felt like um, and they uh, share that experience uh, with you and uh, there will be if you do it properly, a core of wonder in the midst of all
1: that. Yeah.
2: Yeah. So, I, let me tell you something. Go that, for um, it. When we started Outside Magazine, that was uh, Michael Rogers, Harriet Fear, and myself. Um, we were talking about what kind of magazine it would be. Um, and... Uh, After six months of uh, working on it and reading every other magazine that was available at the time, canoeing, tell you how to paddle a canoe 12 times a year, um, they were service-oriented. What about a magazine that was literate, literate writing about the out-of-doors, uh, American literature is rife with uh, out-of-doors things, from James Fenimore Cooper and uh, uh, Herman Melville and Mark Twain, Faulkner, Hemingway. um, And the stories in Man's Adventure, Adventure for Man, Man's Testicle, they were not serving that thing very well. They were fictional stories, or at least I assume they were, because... um, the uh, 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 the people often had to battle bloodthirsty penguins at the North Pole. And uh, as we all know, there's no penguins at the North Pole. In fact, there's nothing there except ice. Uh, I went swimming at the North Pole, by the way. Did you? Yeah, yeah. Um, And then in the men's magazines, uh, uh, there usually was uh, uh, the men uh, who were adventuring um, always ran into nymphos. Uh, The the jungles and the mountains were um, infested by women suffering from this provocative disorder. And uh, um, also rhinos. There were rhinos pretty much everywhere. So it was uh, uh, Bruce J. Friedman, who edited some of those magazines, uh, wrote a book about uh, what they're called the post-war pulps. They had names like Saga, Argosy, things like that, Uh, Man's Adventure. Uh, And the title of his uh, book was Even the Rhinos Were Nymphos. Mm So anyway, well, we, we, we were starting this magazine, and I said, yes, literate writing about the out-of-doors, uh, uh, great. Um, maybe we could do an adventure story. And uh, my compatriots, Harriet and Michael, said, yeah, but those are subliterate stories, Tim. Uh, you know, they, they – I said, well, um, you know, we don't need Superman. Uh, Superman is – no fun as a story. He can leap tall buildings in a single bound. What's this mountain going to mean to him? Um, we need somebody who's can write a coherent English sentence, who is uh, 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 p- perhaps easily frightened, um, a bit of a doofus, uh, and uh, put him at the bottom of that mountain, And then you'll have some drama. Then you'll have a story. And uh, they still did not – they still saw uh, Outdoor Adventure as something being in the realm of uh, these men's adventure magazines. Uh, But they said, okay, Tim, you give it a try. And uh, so I did. And actually, that turned out to be some of the more uh, popular stories in the magazines. Yeah. The funniest ones, too, I'm sure. <laughs> yeah, because I was never, never, never as uh, uh, as skilled as I hoped I might be. Right. Thing. But, but you know as well as I do that you do have to train for them. You have to know what you're doing. If you do not know what you're doing, um, that engenders fear and panic. If you've done it many, many times before and something starts to go wrong, you can you will react, uh, as I said, instinctually, creaturely, without really thinking about it
1: and get it done. Yeah, and it becomes so much more relatable. I, mm-hmm. I think that people like um, Michael Pollan are such great writers because they dive into a new subject, learn all about it. But they aren't far enough along in that subject. They haven't been in that world long enough. They, they forget what it's like to be a beginner. So they can relay that message to a reader, and it becomes they become a great conduit to a new world.
2: Yeah, for, for many uh, years at uh, Outside Magazine, uh, I did stories that might be titled Rookie in the Wilderness. And uh, what we discovered early on was we might get a story from the greatest ice climber in the world. Um, that's great. But the, the person has spent all his or her time uh, becoming the greatest ice climber in the world. And it's, uh, maybe they can write, uh, but they're writing for their peers, for other people who are great ice climbers whereas most of our readers probably weren't great ice climbers wondered what it was like to do it so it turned out that you would take me and i could write from the beginner's thing and uh, and then do a bit of ice climbing and then watch the greatest ice climber in the world and tell you where you would have to go to uh, uh, do that kind of thing. So 10 years of Rookie in the Wilderness, and then, then it turned out that uh, I wasn't a rookie anymore. Yeah.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I knew too much. Right. <laughs> yeah, Yeah. you have to do some forgetting, <laughs> right? which is a great uh you know the Zen mind, beginner's mind, right? right? There's something to that. There is, yeah. And I've I've always found that by like doing new sports constantly for me, or just new activities that I suck at, and kind of hurling myself into new worlds, it allows me to kind of keep a a more fun, more fun and zesty approach to a sport like surfing that I've been doing mm-hmm. since I was like ten years old. Mm-hmm. Um, keeps the newness alive and, and keeps me young. Um, you know, you, from the outside, you end and how, how do I frame, frame this question? You know, there's what people see of your life, which is this great adventure story. You know, you've mm-hmm. done a road trip from Tierra del Fuego up to Alaska. You've mm-hmm. been with the mountain gorillas in Virunga and everywhere in between, um, but there is a lot of sacrifice that comes along with that commitment to this life. Um, and it's a. The reason I'm really happy to be talking with you is because it's a life that I identify with. Um, I've, I feel that going on adventure is, for me, a, an internal pursuit, and I, I really get something out of it. And those that, when I put myself in a place where I'm really scared up against the natural mm-hmm. world, it really charges me up and nourishes me um but i also have been on plenty of adventures where it's just a huge crazy adrenaline rush you know chasing big waves around the world and then i come back and i feel totally depressed and exhausted and low and i i have to ask myself you know what was that all for if i feel this huge dip in energy right after the adventure right so I am asking myself that question that, you know, you've asked yourself for quite some time. Like, what does it all mean? Is it just this adventure circuit or is there something deeper? Because whenever I've been in periods of my life where I'm, I am in one spot for too long, um, and starting to live a life that feels a bit too cookie cutter, I feel super constricted. Mm. Uh, I kind of like I'm wasting life and I've, you know, ultimately, I'm searching for um, nourishment and love in odd places. <laughs> if, in if, all the odd places. In all the odd places, you know, through through nature, you know, through mm-hmm. through adventure. Um, and I'm wondering if you can kind of speak to that, speak to that sacrifice and loneliness and, and finding meaning in... Um, ways that most people don't through a life that most people don't get to live. Well, um, one of
2: the, one of the things I do is, uh, I, often, I often travel alone. Um, and, uh, as a journalist, uh, it's probably hard for people to believe that uh, I'm, I'm pretty shy and introverted. And, uh, Uh, But we're social beings, and when you're alone, you tend to want to meet and talk to other people. Uh, You want some human contact, and that forces me to uh, have some contact with uh, uh, other people, and uh, um, I've kept in touch with uh, lots and lots of people um, all over the world, uh, and... uh, but um uh, i don't know i don't know some sometimes i'm uh, uh i have a i have a story that I thought was going to be good, but it wasn't it bored me um happily after several years of doing this um the, uh, uh, publications that, uh, paid me and hired me, um, were, you know, okay. He said he was going to do bat caves in, uh, uh, Venezuela, but instead he climbed Mount Rorama. Um, so it's, it's a great story. We, you know, I mean, okay. So there's no, there's no guano in it. Um, uh, so I would, uh, do what, uh, interested me um sometimes yes it's a lonely life i there, there used to be a um a kind of uh, adventure or travel book in which the guy or the gal um gets a divorce and that sends them on this uh, worldwide uh, trip um as a guy who's done this for a living, I can tell you that it really doesn't work that way, or at least not for me. Um, uh, more than likely, um, you come home from the North Pole or somewhere uh, similar, and um, uh, there's uh, all the furniture is gone, and uh, all her stuff is gone, and uh, maybe the kitchen table is there, and there's a note on the kitchen table, and uh, uh, so... Uh, you know, it, it doesn't really quite, quite work the way uh, those books uh, sort of did, um, and uh, you you know you're you don't know. You come home. I take copious notes. I take lots and lots of notes. And if I have time, I transfer them to a uh, – I do a reporter's notebook, a five-by-eight reporter's notebook, and then I transfer them to a spiral notebook if I have uh, – uh, whenever I have time. And, uh, and then I study these notes uh, when I get home. Um, and uh, sometimes just studying the notes tells me what the story means – this happened, this happened, this happened, this happened. Yeah, but what are the, all those? Put them all together. What does it mean? You know, uh, so that's a, uh, that in, in, in some respects that alienates you from the person that you are living with because you are still um, in Tanzania in, in your mind. Um, either that or you have malaria. <laughs> yeah.
1: You, one way or another, you're bringing Tanzania back with you. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I, uh, I, th- I found that traveling has become a lot more meaningful as I've started to write about it. Yes. Because it's this process of noticing more on the trip you know and those little details in between that tend to be really great material for writing or a great quote that you hear in that car you never would remember if you weren't thinking about the whole trip as a story and i've just found generally writing to be this um you know even if i never ever sold a word at it to be this process of like creating some semblance to my life, or mm-hmm. some at least illusion of semblance, yeah, you know. And um, whenever I can f- find a new story, you know, particularly one where I fall on my face at the very mm-hmm. end of it and mm-hmm. make someone laugh, it's mm-hmm. like, um, it's just such a sweet moment in life.
2: It is. It is. Uh, and uh, those things. Uh, a lot of things um, – uh, let me just t- reply to one thing that you said. Recently, I've had a uh, a few uh, uh, opportunities to teach writing. I teach, taught in Morocco, uh, in Mexico. Uh, basically, you have um, uh, mostly American writers who – um, want to learn what your techniques are and how you do such things. And so I prepared to, to to teach. And I was not doing what you were talking about or what I was talking about, that is um, writing out my notes and trying to figure out what the story is and doing that. And you're absolutely right. Um, the uh, The trips, while well, they were fun and while I really loved uh uh, I've had uh, the opportunity to have great students. Um, the trip felt a little flat to me just because I was not um, finding the story.
1: Yeah, uh. absolutely. Do you, When you're on a trip, just from a technique perspective, how do you take notes? Do you just keep a notebook with you at all times? And yeah. are there any other... General techniques that you use on the road that have been especially helpful for you. Um,
2: yeah, I use a uh, uh, I use five a genuine uh, a five by eight notebook. Um, it's called the reporter's notebook. You can get them in any staples or anything like that. Uh, you get a whole bunch of them. They're about seventy pages. Um, I write uh, uh, on one side only. And then as I think about – see, what will often happen is something will happen, and you write about it, and you'll say, but I wonder why that happened. A little while later, you'll say, oh, because this, this, and this. And so I go back, and I write on the back part of the page.
1: Oh, so you'll keep one page blank at at any point to kind of – like the first is the what, and the second page is the why.
2: Yeah, yeah. And uh, then I take a – On expeditions, for instance, um, uh, I will volunteer to cook dinner. That's the longest, uh, uh, you know, the the most complicated meal and the most – but I'm really best in the morning taking my notes. So if somebody's doing breakfast and stuff, I have an hour or so to transfer my stuff from the reporter's notebook to uh, uh, to the big spiral notebook. Uh, that I have And I was very delighted To, to be on a panel with uh, my hero The late Peter Matheson
1: Yeah uh, That's uh, my, my friend Chris Ryan who wrote that book Civilized uh, to Death that I just gave you Said that his his One of his favorite books of all time was At Play in the Fields of the Lords
2: uh, Yeah that is that is, uh, that is a great book And uh, and, and for Peter actually hilarious you know it's a Peter uh, was uh, uh, had the um, capacity to to make you laugh sometimes uh, in his later writing he did not do that as much but yeah uh, at play in the fields of the Lord is a, is a great book but um, he also um, used a reporter's notebook and uh, and a spiral notebook now, it, it, Peter and I were often in places where obviously there's no electricity. You know, you're not using a computer. You're not using any kind of uh, um, mechanical uh, device. Uh, on that long trip that I took from uh, Tierra del Fuego to Prudhoe Bay, Alaska, in 23 days, 22 hours, and 43 minutes, the world's record.
1: Congratulations. <laughs>
2: <laughs> um, I found that it, the roads were a little bumpy for notes, and I uh, uh, I read my notes into a tape recorder. And uh, when we eventually got them typed out, there were something in the neighborhood of 850 pages wow. uh, that I had to work with. Yeah.
1: So, so just take me into that scene. Like, what would be an example of you taking notes? I know that's kind of a broad question, but, you know, for someone who's starting out in journalism and they're just like, I don't know – what to write down? When you know what details actually matter. What is there a feeling that you get when you want to start writing notes, or is it more of like a um, at a certain time of day? You know, it, it just take me into that world a little bit. Um, here's a uh, here's an exercise. I
2: do this, and so I give it as an exercise to uh, students when they uh, want to know how to take notes. I say. You're a travel writer. You've got 20 minutes. Right there is a statue. Right about that statue. Just sit there. Don't move. You've got 20 minutes. Well, the first thing that happens is you start just, right. I don't know, it's gray. It was a bulky thing. It's a guy on a horse. Um, and if you are lucky, if you keep thinking about it, you will uh, get into this uh, uh, almost flow state, and you're starting having other thoughts. You know, that is a very bullying statue. I don't like that guy. I don't like the artist. I don't like that it's there. And then look at this. Look at these buildings all around them I mean, they're falling apart are they made out of uh, well how, how do they make cement here with lard and sand i mean geez and things will go off but you you have to start um by writing writing about something and then eventually uh you get into this uh i call it a flow state uh and And when you do uh, things are going to occur to you and uh, um, so yeah, that's my technique yeah. also um uh when you're doing this you uh I call it the internal external um, uh, exercise in that okay, what is this? And how does it make me feel um, and sometimes that's difficult because uh oh maybe you're having a little trouble with your spouse at home and you 're out there, and you do you 're not feeling particularly well does that does uh, does that enter into how you should feel about that uh, uh, not unless you 're going to write about that particular thing you've got to divorce yourself from. Uh, whatever particular traumas you're going through at the time and say, now what is it, you know, if I wasn't, what would I be thinking here? Um, Yeah. So that the notes, notes are something that, um, uh, I encourage people to take and I encourage people to, um, uh, try to let their, their mind flow. And I give them 20 minutes to do it because, uh, I might take an hour, um, I've often found that um, uh, I've uh, been traveling with photographers for a long time, and the photographer needs to wait here for the light to be just right. That's a great time for me to be taking notes, and uh, and usually, if uh, if if the photographer is taking a picture of something, um, it's something worth writing about. Right?
1: <laughs> yeah, I like yeah. that. I like that a lot, yeah. um, and. Regarding, um, you know, I have a, a friend named Steve Hawk who's a writer, um, and he's been nice enough to edit a lot of my work. And one time he said something that always stuck with me. He said, Kyle, don't fool yourself. Every journalist is selling someone out. <laughs>
2: yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: Uh, you, your whole, for lack of a better word, brand is predicated upon trust with the reader the reader sure. trusts that you're going to be honest with them and you at times will encounter people who are wicked nefarious yes. bozos and you're being dishonest if you're going to write about them with rose-colored glasses how do you how have you squared that um, as a storyteller knowing that it sometimes you 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 come across that person and to write about them honestly is going to be the best part of the story, but they're not going to be a big fan of you once that work comes out.
2: I'm going to tell you a long story.
1: Please do. All right.
2: Um, back in 1978 or so, I went to uh, Mexico, beaches of western Mexico, uh, south western Mexico, to watch the Arriba Zone, which is a... Um, which is when the uh, uh, olive ridley turtles come up on the beach and lay their eggs uh, in the hundreds of thousands. And sometimes on a September or October night full moon, there's 100,000 turtles laying their eggs. uh, And I just wanted to see the weight of all that biology. That's what I was going to write about. Well, I went down there, and there was hardly any turtles getting up on the beach. And it turned out that they were fishing them beyond the breakers, a, uh, a fishing company called Piosa. And, uh, uh, but they said, we are conserving the turtles. Really what we're doing is conserving the turtles by, oh yes, we bring them into this slaughterhouse. We kill them. We take their eggs and we put them in these little styrofoam boxes until they're ready. And then we let them go out onto the beach and, uh, uh, and And so we are um, maintaining the, the it 's sustainable well, there was a press conference uh, where we could see the turtle lab and uh, see them uh, uh, dispatching the turtles and uh, and i s- oh, my Spanish was not very good and uh, uh, there was a press conference. Uh, people from Mexico City were down there, and, uh, and uh, they were showing them all these things, and they were uh, shooting it. And I thought, you know, I'll come back later. I'm here. I'll come back later and 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 uh, ask questions in my Tarzan Spanish. Um, and when I came back later, there was nobody in the three days later. Nobody in the lab. Uh, the white styrofoam coolers were. Um, out in the sand uh, with the sun beating down on him, There was one old man there. And I said, well, where's the lab? Where are the scientists? Uh, where's the... Um, uh, who's who's going to take care of these turtles? And the man said... Shook his head. And uh, he said, if you want to see your arribazon, go to the dump. And I went to the uh, dump above this city... And uh, there was the most evil place I think I'd ever seen, just thousands and thousands, hundreds of thousands of turtles um, uh, stripped of their skin. Uh, You could see a flipper in the air, five fingers like yours and mine. And uh, if you've ever been to a dump in the tropics, a meat dump in the tropics, uh, you know that you'll be nauseous uh, walking around in that Evil thing, and I uh, <coughs> the uh, uh, the man running the uh, uh, operation. Pioso was named Antonio Suarez. Um, I got a translator, talked to him on the telephone. He told me all the things that he was doing. He didn't know that I'd been back there to see that um, it. He wasn't doing it. Um, and I wrote a very, very angry story. Um, I didn't uh, – I, I hadn't gone down there to do it, but I'd been slapped in the face with this, uh, uh, with this massacre of an endangered species, and I wrote as angry a story as I possibly could, and I'd interviewed uh, Antonio uh, Piosa, and we did ask tough questions. Um, uh, and this this is a point I want to make. Um, this was 35, 40 years ago. Does it work? Does bringing these things to light, does it work? Well, the Mexican version of 60 Minutes did a story on it. Uh, there were stories in various Mexican magazines. I don't want to say I did this alone. I was with... Uh, Juan José de la Vega uh, from bioconservation and a guy named Boris de Swan, uh, Mexican conservationists who, you know, helped me with the story. Um, Antonio Suarez was uh, invited to the United States um, at a big turtle conference. The story that I wrote in Outside Magazine was put on every turtle conservationist's desk. And uh, uh, some people that were uh, described to me as well-dressed but rather large Mexicans uh, were going by and taking these off the table. Well, happily, um, the Conservation Society had a whole lot of these. And so everybody read them. And uh, meanwhile, uh, Antonio Suarez, uh, federal agents came in and arrested him. This was in Miami. Uh, He'd gone to the turtle conference, and uh, uh, they took him uh, down in the federal building uh, and uh, did his snapshots, did his fingerprints. Now, what had happened is that the uh, federal – the feds were getting all this Mexican uh, green turtle at the time it was um, – at the time, it was legal to sell green turtle in the United States, uh, Mexican green turtle, and uh, this was labeled green turtle. This was before DNA, but you could do a microscope, and uh, the feds said, "There's not that many green turtles in all of Mexico, so where is this coming from?" And uh, they uh, looked at it, and in fact, it was olive ridley turtles, and uh, um, and so he was arrested. For um, selling these Ridley turtles uh, meat in the in the states, uh, the uh, uh, the Fed in charge, uh, a Latin named uh, Jose Toro, said uh, Antonio Suarez is a very rich man and he has a lot of Latin dignity and I think it crushed him to be fingerprinted and mugshot. Uh, he uh, he immediately fled back back to Mexico. Um, but things had changed. Um, Now there were a lot of people who were concerned about the turtles, who were concerned about his uh, fishing. He actually said that it was his daughter, Francesca, who had said, Daddy, why are we killing the turtles? And that's why he quit, so he said. uh, But he quit. Now, uh, 40 years later... Uh, you can uh, YouTube it. Uh, it'll be in Mexican. It'll be in Spanish. Um, uh, you can uh, the beach at Escobilla, Puerto Angel. You can see the Mexican Navy out beyond the breakers, uh, going back and forth, keeping the fishing boats out of there. You can see uh, in the daytime. Uh, Mexican Marines walking the beach to be sure that uh, people aren 't stealing the eggs. People steal the eggs because they believe that it uh, puts lead in the old pencil um, sells sell them in mexico city um, and in the evening the uh, the Marines are motorized, going up and down the beach and then, when the arribaba zone happens, a hundred thousand turtles come up on the beach. They have cameras from Mexico City down there and Mexico is very proud of what they did with their turtles and by God I said there's it does it does help to bring these things to light.
1: Tim Cahill. I asked for an hour and we're at an hour. <laughs> okay. Thank you so much. Thank you, Kyle. Yeah, and um, timcahill.com, dot com is that uh, your website? Don't have a website. No website. No. All right. I'm I'm old school. All right. Well, people can type your name in mm-hmm. uh, to Google and check out all of your work. Yeah,
2: I think you can find the turtle story. Um, uh, you know, Tim Cahill outside magazine. You can find most of my work somewhere.
3: Oh, 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 oh.
1: Thank you. Thank you. That's our show. I'm going to play out the song called Life Down by the Ocean by listener Michael DeBarbie. Thanks for sending that in, Michael. If any of you are musicians and you want your music played at the end of this podcast, you can email it to info at kyle.surf. Info at kyle.surf is also where you can send those voice memos. And my website, kyle.surf, is where you can check out all of my articles. Just released a new one about universal basic income that might give you a chuckle. And uh, it's also where you can sign up for the monthly book club, Uh, kyle.surf. My weekly newsletter is there as well. All my good stuff. Kyle.surf. Thank you, as always, to Sanders Medicinals for sponsoring each of these podcasts. Head over to scmedicinals.com, type in the code name Kyle10, get 10% off all CBD products. You can also head over to rpmtraining.com to get 10% off any training equipment by typing in the code name Kyle10. Go crazy, kids. Have at it. And thank you, as always, to the Nell Newman Foundation for supporting this podcast and supporting so much good work around the world that's it for now get out into nature get out into water whatever body of water you are closest to lake river bathtub or sprinkler i promise it will make your day better that's it for now i'll see you next week